1788 ratification. Transmitted to the Congress of the Confederation, then sitting in New York City, it was within the power of Congress to expedite or block ratification of the proposed Constitution. The new frame of government that the Philadelphia Convention presented was technically only a revision of the Articles of Confederation. After several days of debate, Congress voted to transmit the document to the 13 states for ratification according to the process outlined in its Article 7. Each state legislature was to call elections for a federal convention to ratify the new Constitution, rather than consider ratification itself, a departure from the constitutional practice of the time, designed to expand the franchise in order to more clearly embrace the people. The frame of government itself was to go into force among the states so acting upon the approval of nine, i.e. two-thirds of the thirteen, states, also a departure from constitutional practice, as the Articles of Confederation could be amended only by unanimous vote of all the states. Three members of the convention, Madison, Gorham, and King, were also members of Congress. They proceeded at once to New York, where Congress was in session, to placate the expected opposition. Aware of their vanishing authority, Congress, on September 28, after some debate, resolved unanimously to submit the Constitution to the states for action, in conformity to the resolves of the Convention, but with no recommendation either for or against its adoption. Two parties soon developed, one in opposition, the Anti-Federalists, and one in support, the Federalists, of the Constitution, and the Constitution was debated, criticized, and expounded upon clause by clause. Hamilton, Madison, and J., under the name of Publius, wrote a series of commentaries, now known as the Federalist Papers, in support of ratification in the state of New York, at that time a hotbed of anti-federalism. These commentaries on the Constitution, written during the struggle for ratification, have been frequently cited by the Supreme Court as an authoritative contemporary interpretation of the meaning of its provisions. The dispute over additional powers for the central government was close, and in some states, ratification was effected only after a bitter struggle in the state convention itself. On June 21, 1788, the Constitution had been ratified by the minimum of nine states required under Article 7. Towards the end of July, and with 11 states then having ratified, the process of organizing the new government began. The Continental Congress, which still functioned at irregular intervals, passed a resolution on September 13, 1788, to put the new Constitution into operation with the 11 states that had then ratified it. The federal government began operations under the new form of government on March 4, 1789. However, the initial meeting of each chamber of Congress had to be adjourned due to lack of a quorum. George Washington was inaugurated as the nation's first president eight weeks later, on April 30. The final two states both ratified the Constitution subsequently, North Carolina on November 21, 1789 and Rhode Island on May 29, 1790. Influences. Several ideas in the Constitution were new. These were associated with the combination of consolidated government along with federal relationships with constituent states. The Due Process Clause of the Constitution was partly based on common law and on Magna Carta, 1215, which had become a foundation of English liberty against arbitrary power wielded by a ruler. Among the most prominent political theorists of the late 18th century were William Blackstone, John Locke, and Montesquieu. Both the influence of Edward Coke and William Blackstone were evident at the convention. In his Institutes of the Laws of England, Edward Coke interpreted Magna Carta protections and rights to apply not just to nobles, but to all British subjects. In writing the Virginia Charter of 1606, he enabled the King and Parliament to give those born in the colonies all rights and liberties as though they were born in England. William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England were the most influential books on law in the New Republic. British political philosopher John Locke following the Glorious Revolution, 
1688, was a major influence expanding on the contract theory of government advanced by Thomas Hobbes. Locke advanced the principle of consent of the governed in his two treatises of government. Government's duty under a social contract among the sovereign people was to serve the people by protecting their rights. These basic rights were life, liberty and property. Montesquieu's influence on the framers is evident in Madison's Federalist No. 47 and Hamilton's Federalist No. 78. Jefferson, Adams, and Mason were known to read Montesquieu. Supreme Court justices, the ultimate interpreters of the Constitution, have cited Montesquieu throughout the Court's history. Montesquieu emphasized the need for balanced forces pushing against each other to prevent tyranny, reflecting the influence of Polybius's 2nd century BC treatise on the checks and balances of the Roman Republic. In his The Spirit of the Laws, Montesquieu argues that the separation of state power should be by its service to the people's liberty, legislative, executive and judicial. A substantial body of thought had been developed from the literature of republicanism in the United States, including work by John Adams and applied to the creation of state constitutions. The constitution was a federal one, and was influenced by the study of other federations, both ancient and extant. The United States Bill of Rights consists of ten amendments added to the constitution in 1791, as supporters of the Constitution had promised critics during the debates of 1788. The English Bill of Rights, 1689, was an inspiration for the American Bill of Rights. Both require jury trials, contain a right to keep and bear arms, prohibit excessive bail and forbid cruel and unusual punishments. Many liberties protected by state constitutions and the Virginia Declaration of Rights were incorporated into the Bill of Rights. Original Frame Neither the convention which drafted the Constitution nor the Congress which sent it to the 13 states for ratification in the autumn of 1787, gave it a lead caption. To fill this void, the document was most often titled a frame of government when it was printed for the convenience of ratifying conventions and the information of the public. This frame of government consisted of a preamble, seven articles and a signed closing endorsement. Preamble. The preamble to the Constitution serves as an introductory statement of the document's fundamental purposes and guiding principles. It neither assigns powers to the federal government, nor does it place specific limitations on government action. Rather, it sets out the origin, scope, and purpose of the Constitution. Its origin and authority is in we, the people of the United States. This echoes the Declaration of Independence. One people dissolved their connection with another, and assumed among the powers of the earth, a sovereign nation-state. The scope of the Constitution is twofold. First, to form a more perfect union than had previously existed in the perpetual union of the Articles of Confederation. Second, to secure the blessings of liberty, which were to be enjoyed by not only the first generation but for all who came after, our posterity. Article I. Article I describes the Congress, the legislative branch of the federal government. Section 1, reads, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. The article establishes the manner of election and the qualifications of members of each body. Representatives must be at least 25 years old, be a citizen of the United States for seven years, and live in the state they represent. Senators must be at least 30 years old, be a citizen for nine years, and live in the state they represent. Article I, Section 8 enumerates the powers delegated to the legislature. Financially, Congress has the power to tax, borrow, pay debt and provide for the common defense and the general welfare, to regulate commerce, bankruptcies, and coin money. To regulate internal affairs, it has the power to regulate and govern military forces and militias, suppress insurrections and repel invasions. It is to provide for naturalization, standards of weights and measures, post offices and roads, and patents, 
to directly govern the federal district and sessions of land by the states for forts and arsenals. Internationally, Congress has the power to define and punish piracies and offenses against the law of nations, to declare war and make rules of war. The final necessary and proper clause, also known as the Elastic Clause, expressly confers incidental powers upon Congress without the Article's requirement for express delegation for each and every power. Article I, Section 9 lists eight specific limits on congressional power. The Supreme Court has sometimes broadly interpreted the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause in Article I to allow Congress to enact legislation that is neither expressly allowed by the enumerated powers nor expressly denied in the limitations on Congress. In McCulloch v. Maryland, 1819, the Supreme Court read the Necessary and Proper Clause to permit the federal government to take action that would enable to perform the high duties assigned to it in the manner most beneficial to the people, even if that action is not itself within the enumerated powers. Chief Justice Marshall clarified, let the end be legitimate, let it be within the scope of the Constitution, and all means which are appropriate, which are plainly adapted to that end, which are not prohibited, but consist with the letter and spirit of the Constitution, are constitutional. Article 2. Article 2 describes the office, qualifications, and duties of the President of the United States and the Vice President. The President is head of the executive branch of the federal government, as well as the nation's head of state and head of government. Article 2 is modified by the Twelfth Amendment which tacitly acknowledges political parties, and the Twenty-Fifth Amendment relating to office succession. The President is to receive only one compensation from the federal government. The inaugural oath is specified to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution. The President is the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Armed Forces, as well as of state militias when they are mobilized. He or she makes treaties with the advice and consent of a two-thirds quorum of the Senate. To administer the federal government, the President commissions all the offices of the federal government as Congress directs, he or she may require the opinions of its principal officers and make recess appointments for vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate. The President is to see that the laws are faithfully executed, though he or she may grant reprieves and pardons except regarding congressional impeachment of himself or other federal officers. The President reports to Congress on the State of the Union, and by the Recommendation Clause, recommends necessary and expedient national measures. The President may convene and adjourn Congress under special circumstances. Section 4 provides for the removal of the President and other federal officers. The President is removed on impeachment for, and conviction of, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.